Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. This is Stories Out of Time and Space, the sci-fi movie review podcast. Uh, I'm with your co-host, Scott Weatherly, and I'm joined by Julian Darius. Julian, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm eager to talk about uh, Blade Runner and prove that I am a replicant. How are you? (laughs) I'm good. Uh, And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to getting into this. And I think you're right. I think we're going to be getting to that question that I have flipped and flopped on over the last couple of days. <laughs> the core of all this is, is Rick Deckard a replicant? Um, but you're right, we are going to be talking about Blade Runner. Um, I'll give a quick overview, just so we're sort of, just for those that may or not watch, may not have seen it, um, again, as usual, just so you know, there will be spoilers ahead. Uh, so Blade Runner, uh, 1982, directed by Ridley Scott, Written by Hampton Fancher and David Peoples and based on the book Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip K. Dick. It stars Harrison Ford, Sean Young, Rutger Hauer, Daryl Hannah, Brian James, Joanna Cassidy, Edward James Olmos and James Sanderson. Uh, It's about genetically engineered beings called replicants have been created by the Tyrell Corporation to work as part of off-world expansion and conflict. A previous replicant revolution has resulted in a law banning all replicants being on Earth. To enforce this, a police unit was created called the Blade Runners. Also, replicants are given a fixed genetic lifespan of four years. Five Nexus 6 replicants have snuck back to Earth. Led by Roy Batty, they are trying to infiltrate the Tyrell Corporation to understand why they have limits on their life and how they can live longer. Rick Deckard, a former Blade Runner, is called back to duty to track them down and retire them. So that's the summary. So, Julian, what are your initial thoughts on Blade Runner? Well, um, I think there's no escaping Blade Runner's influence. Um, Mm. I think um, in a few ways. Uh, The first is its depiction of a sort of dark technological future um, that is not affluent. Uh, I think it's sort of look and feel obviously has been duplicated a million times. Um, uh, basically everything I like about the total recall, uh, reboot <laughs> is yeah. stuff stolen from Blade Runner. Um, <laughs> but, uh, so very influential, influential in that way. I think also influential in terms of philosophical sci-fi, um, I mean, we've talked about, you know, Solaris and, you know, we know movies like 2001, but I think hmm. that the, I, the particular strain of philosophy in Blade Runner of sort of who, what is real, obviously these are classic Philip K. Dick themes, you know, what is reality? What does it mean to be alive? What does it mean to be a real human? Uh, how do we draw the lines between that and the other? These are all sort of classic Dick themes, and I think they have 
it took a little while, but those have come to be very uh, influential um, and prominent themes in sci-fi. On the other hand, I, I think that, um, you know, the plot itself, um, you know, has some good things and has some bad things. I, I think that it took me, I, I was telling you before the show that um, it, I sort of grew up and it took me a little while to kind of get into Blade Runner and sort of see what everyone was talking about. And I kind of, you know, spent maybe 15 years in that. All right, this is a classic. I love it. I really enjoy it. The music's great. All of this stuff is great. And now I'm kind of, you know, the bloom is coming a little off the rose for me. Mm. What about you? What, what's been your response to Blade Runner? It, it's an interesting one because I think I watched this um, in the first time I watched this, I think it was in my early teens. And the first thing I remember is seeing the sort of the, 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 the version with the narration. Um, and so I, I, I I can remember thinking this is actually quite a boring film and actually even myself thinking the narration is incredibly irritating. And so I didn't actually go back to this for a long while. So it was one of those, I, I knew people, you know, uh, gave a lot of praise to and, and you know, how influential it is, as you say, uh, it, but it probably wasn't until I was at university again that I, I went back to it. <clears throat> and by that point, I think I watched the director's cut, which is an improvement, you know, it removes the, the narration and sort of the, uh, other bits and pieces like the the happy ending that was tacked on um and then sort of picked it up again when they did the the final cut which is what i watched for this uh for this review and i've watched that several times really since probably sort of uh five or six in the last couple of years since that came out and each time i watch it like i enjoy it it's a good film like you can sit and watch it I, I, you know i like it. it's got good pace it's got good plot in it's 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 got a good aesthetic um but more and more, I think you know yourself. There are times when you sort of—I'll get to it from a logistics point of view. I just think that 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 doesn't sort of make sense to me, and I sort of let it ride. Um, it's good fun, you know. It's it's actually quite a good fun. I like the fact it sort of taps into that sort of noir um, detective story of the sort of the forties and fifties. It's got a real charm in that sense. Um, unfortunately, I think this also gets tarnished for me, and I try to ignore it with all the faux. 14 year old philosophy yeah that gets put on top of it you know um and i just find that a little tiresome and people we will get into some of it but you know it gets taken to an extreme about how certain things are symbolism and there's certain things that are supposed to be symbolism but like people seem to tack things onto this that just to try and find a new angle to view it from um so i can't deny it's a good film and enjoy it I just think people sometimes added a little bit too much to it um, in their discussions. Yeah, I mean, it's similar to, to Star Wars in the sense that um, it, it has, because of its reputation and its influence, and in the case of Blade Runner, sort of, you know, all of this uh, philosophy around it, discussions of symbolism and, you know, discussions of, uh, you know, whether Deckard is a replicant, you know, um, spoilers, right? Uh, or not, depending on your point of view. Um, you know, it's hard to approach it with fresh eyes, I think. Mm. Yeah, it's one of those, I think, that say it's got, a, it's got a legacy that you sort of have to take into consideration when, when watching it. Um, but you can watch it as a, as a good, as a, as a, a film, you know, just as a sort of, as, as a movie, yeah. if you will. Um, but, yeah, no, what I... 
one of the things that that I'm bothered by, I mean, in terms of just it as a movie is I, I, I think that I mean, it is slow. Um, you know, it's slow deliberately and, and it's more about mood than it is any given line of dialogue. Although there are some famous lines of dialogue, there's also some kind of crappy dialogue, but, um, it's really for me about mood more than anything. And really the plot is super simple, right? I mean, guy chases three replicants, uh, you know, um, kills them one by one. Right. Mm. Um, and, you know, B plot, you know, there's Rachel who finds out she's a replicant and they began an affair. OK, I mean, that's the plot. It, it's you could do that in 30 minutes. Um, it really is for me about mood, about some of the shots. I mean, obviously, like the killing of Zora sort of falling through all those glass mm-hmm. displays, um, you know, the, the building, um, you know, that Sebastian lives in you know, with all the rain and all the deterioration, um, you know, it really is about sort of mood and these visuals and these, and this music, there's not a whole lot of dialogue. Um, but it does seem to me that if it has a flaw just structurally, it's that it seems to kind of careen from scene to scene. And I think this is something that irritated me. I had a similar pattern, you know, as a teenager that kind of hurt my ability to get into it. That, you know, you're sort of introduced to Deckard and, you know, the Voidkampf and, you know, he, you're following up on, you know, a, a murder and you sort of set off the plot and then you cut to Batty and, you know, these replicants and everybody just seems to be doing things in each scene that isn't entirely clear um, mm-hmm. or you're not really sure, like, Oh, these are these are the replicants, right? Well, what are they doing? What what's their agenda again? You know, why is Zora, you know, stripping? Why is you know, the, I'm not even sure, you know, that she she doesn't seem to have much to do with uh, uh, Batty and Pris. Um, yeah, that's actually a really good question because that's one of the ones that came out for me in this one was, um, you know, the law is pretty blanket: no replicants on Earth. Any replicant on Earth has has got to be destroyed. <clears throat> and that's what the Blade Runners are for. But when he actually takes down, when he meets Zora, and uh, he, you know, he tracks her down through um, uh, the snake um, scale, and she's obviously one of the ones that's got to be retired. Like, yeah, she's at, she's working as a stripper, and she it, it feels a bit like she's been doing it for at least a while. So you know, maybe mm-hmm. not months, but at least weeks. So she's established. Like, she's got a routine. Like, she's covered in sequins and has a snake. Like, she's got a routine. So she's known there like i don't sort of i'm still a bit confused it's like i don't see what the problem is like yeah so people want to see replicant boobies but they don't know she's a replicant i don't see what the problem is so she seems to be like living her life but they don't because they don't need the money i don't see it doesn't seem that like batty and pris and even leon and the other don't seem to need the money so they just seem to be yeah that one's confuses me because at least with so at the very start of the film, you introduced the first replicant, Leon, mm-hmm. played by Brian James, and he's obviously been given the the, the Voigtkampf uh, test, uh, and that results in him actually killing the first Blade Runner you sort of are introduced to, and you find that the reason he so he had a job working as waste disposal at the Tyrell Corporation, so he has a purpose, like he is being planted in the company to try and get access to Tyrell. That 
okay, it sounds like a clunky plan, but it makes sense. Mm-hmm. I can see attempting that. So that kicks off the plot. But with Zora, like, yeah, I don't see any connection between what she is doing and this agenda to um, to, to get to Tyrell. And I, I thought I may, may have missed something in this viewing. So it was one of my questions. I was like, what is she doing then? Yeah, but, and, you know, it's... Uh, I mean, the movie has other sort of problems with gender um, that especially mm-hmm. came out in, in this viewing for me. Um, but, you know, this, this may be one of it. Um, you know, maybe they need a little bit of spending money, you know, or they're planning on, you know, doing something to, to get at Tyrell, you know, that they might need money for. I mean, you could kind of rationalize that. But... Uh, again, she seems really established. There's no talk about how they need money. There's no talk about how long she's been there. Um, it's really kind of an excuse for her to show off her breasts um, mm. and, you know, to have this, you know, sort of evocative, beautiful thing of her with a snake. And, you know, and like you said, I mean, you think about men staring at, you know, these synthetic uh, breasts and uh, how they seem satisfied you know, what has she done? And then Deckard shoots her in the back. Um, mm. You know, is he the good guy? I mean, all of this is kind of evocative and interesting, but it doesn't necessarily make sense. It doesn't necessarily like offend the sensibilities. Like, you know, you don't have somebody say, oh yeah, that's a that's a, a black hole bomb we're going to kill mm. Deckard with. You know, it doesn't have that kind of plot hole, but it's filled with these kind of like unexplained things. Um, and well, I'm, I'm going to get to what so the biggest one for me because I think sort of like in fact Zora sort of uh, um, opens up this this thing for me because Zora, Zora and Batty in particular have um, raised an issue for me. <clears throat> so Pris um, is a pleasure. So they call it like a basic pleasure model. So she is literally sent out to. Um, be a sexual plaything, and they actually say something about uh, sent off to military bases and stuff like that. So that has its has its own connotations, all its own, which is off world. You know these these um, replicants seem to be integrated within the system. It's only on it's only on Earth that there's a problem, and you're not really given any information about off Earth. It's mentioned a lot going off planet, going doing this, but it's never really fully explained what's going on. You just got to get hints and, and sort of um, notions of it. And obviously later there's the famous quote at the end about, you know, when Roy talks about attack ships off the shoulder of Orion on fire. And mm-hmm. you're thinking, and, you know, it's a great yeah. speech. It sounds fascinating. What the hell were they doing? Like, who were they attacking? Like, yes. What's the war going on? I, I don't know. But he's a soldier. He is a military unit. He was created to be a soldier. And Zora was created. And she, when, when it's told about their story, she's part of a death squad. And that's sort of it's the first time I'd really noticed that this. I was like, I was like pardon, what? So she's actually a, <laughs> an assassin, okay. Um, so why aren't these military figures like able to break into the Tyrell Corporation? It's not a military base, so it shouldn't be too hard. Like it feels like they're not utilizing their skills in the way that they should be. Um, yes. But the other thing that I find interesting, like with Pris, they've made her to be very attractive. She's played by Daryl Hannah. She's she's very attractive, and she's you know she's very gymnastics. She's very sort of um, lithe and think. Okay, I accept that as a pleasure model. That's fine. But they've implemented all these things within them at a genetic level. 
Yeah, so they've got like a, a restrictive lifespan. Um, memories, they find, you find out that memories can actually be implanted and all this other stuff. And all I kept thinking about when I saw Roy Batty, and it might have been his hair that triggered it for me, like his very white hair. But I kept thinking about Rogue Trooper from 2000 uh-huh. AD. Yeah. So in that, like the GIs, the rogue genetically made GIs, the genetic infantrymen, are actually made blue so they can be identified as genetic infantrymen. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And all I can think of the same as this is like, well, why don't you do that with replicants? Like, you, if, if it's such a problem that you need to have a question-answer-based test to identify them, at a genetic level, make them a different color. Right. And you think that would be, I mean, if you're making artificial eyes, right? I mean, yeah. you're making very complicated things. You should be able to, like, tweak a gene or something to make them have blue skin. Yeah. Um, I mean, the only thing I can think of is clearly that wasn't the origin of the replicants. Mm. They are sort of synthetic people. Um, you know, you sort of imagine that they started as basically robots, um, mm. but kind of evolved into being sort of organic robots. Um, I mean, because they're clearly organic. Um mm. You know, they seem to have. Well, I mean, another question I have is what exactly are the replicants' abilities? Um, you know, you, you're shown uh, that they can withstand extreme heat, you know, with that egg scene. Um, and yeah, you know, and extreme cold, because so they, they've got the, the. Leon does it with the, the nitrogen as well. So. Right, mm. exactly. And then, you know, they can. You see with the fight at the end, Batty can get hit with the beam and kind of recover. Um, you know, his body seems kind of twisted, but, and he pokes his head through the wall. Um, so it seems as if they have some kind of like enhanced strength, but that's never really defined. Um, you know, I, I mean, that's a pretty major issue. And Mm -hmm. and I think it's all kind of forgivable because, um, the whole point is that they're they're artificial. What does it mean to? What are the differences between if artificial technology progresses enough that we have? You know, I mean, it's the old issue of like a sentient robot, right? Mm-hmm. Um, does it have rights? Uh, except here, instead of uh, you know, say, watching Robin Williams debate whether he has rights or not, um, you know, we just have these organic robots who just have no rights. Nobody really seems to question that. There's no like replicant rights groups uh, protesting. Um, and so well, we're left to kind of think about it. That's a, that's a good point. Cause one of the things that sort of gets mentioned in this film repeatedly is this idea of slavery. You know, so they actually do say they refer to themselves as, as slaves, you know, to their genetics or, or to their, to their function. And then again, all I could think of is, is like, but you, and again, maybe this is the thing. And like, but you've picked, like, if you, I mean, maybe maybe two on the nose. But you've got like, um, Rutger Hauer, uh, Brian James, um, Daryl Hannah, and Joanna Cassidy, who are very sort of like you know, mostly very sort of pretty people and very white. Mm-hmm. And it's that thing of like, you, if you're going to keep hammering home this idea of slavery, like, it, it just feels a bit. Well, they're actually stronger. So, why are you slave? You know, what's preventing this rebellion in 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 space? I don't understand, like sort of like the dynamics of what prevents them from. Because they say they're they're more durable, they're stronger, um, they're clearly combat trained. 
I, I don't understand what stops them, uh, other than this four-year lifespan, from revolting. Like it, it, it doesn't right. seem to be any other, any other like um, mechanism to sort of you know to restrict them. That seems to be it. It seems to be oh, they've got a four-year right. lifespan, and you think, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't feel. Um, you know, it, in fact, it, it, again, it jumped to my head when watching it. It, it. When I watched Jurassic Park, they actually addressed the idea of what, why, you know, what happens if they get off the island, and they say, oh, well, they they can't survive off the island because I mean, obviously, that, it falls away in the later films, but forget that. But they said they can't mm-hmm. because we've got to actually give them a certain chemical for them to survive, mm-hmm. like their body's dependent on it. And you think, ah, genetically, that makes sense. You can control the environment they can survive in. But again, with these, they just sort of seem to, I don't know, it's, I think Tyrell has got a real corporate responsibility issue in this. <laughs> Not to say the least. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and I think that uh, I always kind of imagined, like with Batty, you know, you imagine these sort of, uh, you know, uh, troopers, uh, the you know, going off and fighting and then they're all going back to some sort of station maybe their equipment has remote controlled explosives i mean but the thing is you have to imagine all of this um it's never said it's never really said um and i I think you know although uh, i mean you got into the the whole final speech of batty and i've always felt the same way like i not only can i not picture what this you know fight off orion and who's fighting but also like how far away have we colonized that Mm. sounds pretty far um now you know in the in the novel you're sort of left to think that earth has been irradiated and Mm. basically nobody who is uh successful uh stays on earth right earth is just a kind of like wasteland if you have any money, if you have any clout, you are long gone. And that's why all of these buildings are kind of empty. And, mm. you know, there are these interesting ways in which the film sort of alludes to the novel, but doesn't really have any interest in following through. So Sebastian says, you know, I mean, it's he says, uh, every, you know, he, he explains to Pris why he couldn't leave for the colonies because um, he has a disability and he talks about how everybody's gone. I have this whole building to myself and that's all kind of charming, but that's all you really hear about uh, this sort of situation. And so like in the novel, you know, there are these off world colonies, but you have much more of a sense of like, okay, we are in a wasteland. I mean, this is a mm-hmm. post-apocalyptic movie. There's still cities, there's still technology but, you know, we are really in the ghetto of yeah. the, uh, you know, colonial Earth empire, whatever it is. You don't have a lot of details, but you really get the feeling like, yeah, this is a radiated ghetto that we're in. Well, this and is the why... movie doesn't portray that. No, it doesn't. And, and this is why the, the, I mean, there's two things, because really, that that situation, that scenario is is presented better in the sequel uh blader in 2049 because they go out into that irradiated wasteland like you see what's happened to those other cities and you know the expanse of just desert or trash filled landscapes and that's Mm -hmm. that's quite cool but like you say it was clear that 
even at least in that original theatrical version and the TV version, is they didn't get that at all because the end of the film had them driving off into some really beautiful forests. <laughs> um, yeah, I uh, okay. So the point. Maybe maybe we should talk about these different versions uh, mm. because. I have to say that is actually I, I watched the final cut uh, for for uh, in preparing for this, but I have to say that original version is my favorite version, um, and I know I'm in the minority, uh, <laughs> but I I don't like all of their narration. But when I watch that final cut, I mean I hate the revised ending. I think this whole revised mm-hmm. ending is absolute shit. Um, you know I like the long pause and then the kind of like film noir detective saying. You know, starting with, I don't know why he saved me. Um, yeah, people do unexplained things. I mean, mm-hmm. that sounds. I love that line, and that line as a is a great intro to sort of the the classic film noir detective sign off. Um, I really hate uh, watching Gaff uh, say, you know, like. Well, you know, who knows how long you have, kid? You know, yeah. I, I, I like I like them going out into um, some other area. And you're right; it looks really nice. But um, but I like the I like this sort of like we're maybe that's Canada, right? I mean, it's not totally incommensurate with the with the sequel. But I like the idea of sort of them running off together, and the idea that. Um, yeah, we don't have that much in common, maybe, but we, depending on whether you think he's a replicant, but we forged this relationship and who knows how long anybody has, you know, the sense of more that that really this is a parallel for human mortality and mm. that no relationship lasts. Right. I mean, no relationship lasts. Every relationship ends. And even if it is a successful relationship, it ends with somebody dying. Um we are all grasping at closeness in the midst of our expiration dates. And even though some of that same concept is in the revised version, it's given to Gaff and it's not hammered home the way I like it it hammered home in the original cut with the narration and that driving off into the green. Mm. So here's where you tell me I'm I'm full of shit because I know this is an unpopular view. No, no, no. It's, it's an interesting view because I think it's one of those where, I, so I understand. My understanding is that the the addition of the narration was because they did a bunch of screenings and <clears throat> people just didn't get it, so they went back and added sort of the narration. It does have a gumshoe, hard boiled kind of feel to it. You know, you sort of, I, I, it adds to that noir feeling that I went back to of sort of like those forties and fifties films. The problem I have with it is it's sort of, and I'm not saying I'm best than anybody or brighter but like a lot of it seems to sort of repeat what's going on and and for me it's a bit like thought bubbles and thought captions in comics do you know what I mean it's sort of like if you need that mm-hmm. that if you if you need those things then you you're not demonstrating or you're not telling me the story it's sort of a show don't tell you know um, right and I, I do think there's an awful lot of like you know I think that's why I, I like some of the ambiguity in this film when we get into sort of the the replicant question. Um, and I think that the sort of narration is a bit too sort of like thumpy, thumpy trying to hit things home. But also I think the problem I have with it is it's clear that Harrison Ford didn't want to have to do it. Yes, absolutely. And so, that, and so there are sort of, as you said before, when you watch like the final cut or the director's cut without it, there are 
portions of the film that are, are mood driven um, and you know are, are driven by the visuals, whether that be the neon sort of like uh, rain soaked markets in the streets or his apartment or whatever it is. Um, and then when they had the narration and stuff on top of it, it just drones a bit, and I just find it sort of like it it it, it just wears me out a little bit more. Um, and added to well, my I, bo- my boredom, I think when I first watched it. Well, I think all of that is fair. I think that is the dominant view of narration today: is that it's mm. sort of the thought balloons. It's it's well, it it also reminds you of like the excess use of captioning in old comics, right? Where it's like yes. you yeah. know. We went to uh the we went to the White House, you know, because we had to talk to the president. Well, it's right over an image of them walking into the White House. Um, yeah, you know, why did you give me that? Um, and so yeah, I agree with that. And personally, and, and it is totally true that uh, Ridley Scott was forced to add that narration. He didn't want to. Harrison Ford supposedly did it as poorly as possible, uh, mm-hmm. hoping that they would cut it. Um, look, personally, I would cut, you know, the majority of their narration. Um, and even, even at the end, I mean, there, there are lines that I just think, yeah, we don't need this. I would cut this, but, um, I'm not saying that overall the narration is good. Uh, I just think that at the end, I like that. Um, I don't know why he saved me. Um, and I like the, the, the very ending, uh, with them going off together. I don't like. Um, I, you know, I, I think that those test audiences were right. It is a confusing film. Mm. Um, in particular, it is really confusing in its scene to scene transitions. Um, you know, I am bothered by the fact that, you know, you have this, uh, the murder of Tyrell, which is very, uh, memorable. Uh, you know, Sebastian's con with the chess game. It's, it's all memorable. Batty killing him. It's memorable. It's all good. And then uh, Deckard is going to um, uh, to Sebastian's home, has sort of followed the lead there. And you think, oh, uh, those replicants and Sebastian are still over at Tyrell's and, and somehow he's going to uh, figure this out and go there. No, they're back already. Um, yeah. When did they go back? What's the timeline here? Uh, How there's so many things that- yeah, and there's so many things like that where you're expecting something else and you get something and you get something other and it's not it's it, that does not seem to be a conscious decision. That seems to be like, well, this movie's too long already. We don't need like a shot of them going back and having Sebastian kind of, you know, look over at Batty and Pris, you know, in the in the car and you know, cuz he's suddenly scared of them having witnessed them kill Tyrell. I mean, a a 30 second scene like that would have done wonders for the film. And the film is missing like a dozen 30 second scenes like that, that just would be glue holding it together. I I do agree with that. That's, that is a fair shout. Cause I think one of the key ones for me in that sort of uh, vein is there's a scene of like, and it's, it's, it's sort of standard fare. Like you are introduced to the, you know, you've already met one of the, uh, the replicants, Leon, and you're introduced to the rest of the crew, sort of uh, Roy Batty, Pris, and Zora. <clears throat> and you're showing them, and they have like a file. And in the files, and with the images, they're wearing like a like a skull cap to cover their hair. Um, and and the, but then when you're introduced to them, I mean, to be fair, Zora's sort of like you know, yeah, her face is quite you know recognizable when she's when she sort of 
uh, seen. Batty, fine. But with Daryl Hannah, when you see her for the first time, like she's wearing sort of like, you know, quite white makeup. She's got sort of like a shock of white hair and all sort of stuff. Like she looks nothing like the picture you've been shown of like, and watch out for this one. She's the pleasure droid or the pleasure version. But, and I remember for the first time, the first uh, time watching this and for a long time after, I was really confused how Daryl Hannah was involved in this. And until sort of like Roy comes over and he says, oh, here's my friend Roy. I was like, oh, she's the other one. Because um, she just sort of turns up at Sebastian, um, JF Sebastian's house. And if you aren't watching, like, yeah, she she has no connection. And I say that a simple a simple connecting scene would, would clear all that up. Um, and I get yeah. it now, but only because I know the story and I know that Daryl Hannah is playing that character. But yeah, I agree. There are several scenes like that, or several sections like that, that would benefit from a little bit more clarity. Because um, right, and I, I mean, and that's what the narrative was was demanded yeah. uh, to address. Um, and and narration can be uh, narration rather narration can be useful to do that. Um, there are many ways with editing, adding narration, shooting additional scenes, whatever, that you can improve a film once it's basically in the can. Um, and I don't think that narration is off the table. I don't think that it's always bad. Um, I think that there are many classic and wonderful films that do it. Uh, I agree. Most of that narration isn't, isn't great. Um, you know, but you're right. And I, I think there are so many scenes like that, even like, um, when, uh, when, uh, Rachel comes down and saves, uh, Deckard from uh, from Tyrell, mm. uh, not from Tyrell, from, from Leon. Leon. Mm. Um, you know, she just shows up and it's a sort of deus ex machina. And, you know, right. I mean, she happens to be there. Uh, I probably on first viewing, I didn't even remember that he had kind of called her drunk. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a brief glimpse as he sees her like across the street uh, because she's for some reason still wearing the exact same, you know, sort of fake <laughs> mink, uh, you know, clothes. I mean, she never changes her clothes, right? Until she puts her hair down. Um, but uh, you know, it's it's very no. There's never a line of dialogue of like, um, "Why'd you come?" You know, and 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 me, that's fine. I mean, that's not a mistake, but it's just an indication of how much work you have to do to sort of connect scenes and connect what characters are doing exactly like what you were talking about. Yeah, it's it's true. And that's a, that's a good one. Again, it's sort of one I caught this time, but I think I sort of missed and just assumed that she, you know, cause I remember making the call and just assumed she turned up, but like you say, it, it does play a bit too convenient. Um, and so, yeah, I, I can appreciate that. The narration added in places can add something, but I, I still stand by the fact that overall it's a drag on the film. Um, but again, I, think I agree from, with that. Uh, from from a story standpoint, again, sort of watching it these couple of times, I really get the feeling that, I like say, Ridley Scott was aiming for a mood and uh, a tone rather than a story. Like the story mm-hmm. seems to be almost secondary to some of the things that he wants to achieve. Um, you know, that sort of... Because like, there'll be other storytellers, I can think of others, again, like, you know, um, uh, Villeneuve, who made the second one, or sort of other sci-fi, sort of you know, known sci-fi directors that would have added in 
details mm-hmm. or dialogue and stuff that would have addressed all this in the in the plot. Um, and so it, it does feel like he's he's less concerned about the characters than he is about presenting a sort of a world and trying to sort of just present this sort of almost he wants to present the idea or the question of you know uh, what is life you know slavery um who owns who and that other morality he wants to present the questions but isn't hugely bothered by presenting a story to or a solid story to encase those um questions i, I think that's fair yeah i mean I, and i i think I think you're right to point to to mood and sort of philosophical questions. And I think those are the things that stay with you. Um, it's interesting to me how, you know, we're talking about uh, sort of problems what the movie doesn't depict. Um, you know, the off-world colonies, you don't have a sense of the world. You don't really have a sense of how replicants work. Um, these are things that it's interesting that they're not answered I can also imagine a much worse version of Blade Runner that tries to answer all of this, right? Yeah. And and none of the answers are satisfying to you and me. And and we're on this podcast basically like saying, yeah, I'm not really sure that that makes sense. You know, why are we, you know, fighting off of Orion and we still haven't, you know, gotten this stuff figured out on Earth? Yeah. Um, you know, there would be problems there. I, I just think that, so, I mean, I don't necessarily need all of that answered. Um, I don't know that you have to answer all of that, but I think that it would be a more, it, you could keep the sort of like focus on mood and smooth out the plot just a little mm-hmm. and just kind of gesture toward some of these answers, you know, gesture toward like, you know, yeah, I know I haven't explained this and it's, and it seems to me that it's clear that the movie doesn't know how much it's not answering and what it is. Um, because when you have that, you know, initial scene with Harrison Ford, where he's sort of introduced to Blade Runner, he's introduced to uh, replicants, right? Mm. He's being told by um, the policeman um, that, uh, is that Taffy? Mm. Um He's being told anyway about about you know oh here here are these these replicants they came here you know and, and he's given so much basic information about like what replicants are yeah. and they say well they have a failsafe and he says what's that you know <laughs> well they have an expiration date it's like yeah he he should knows this already so why has the movie given us that narration when uh, or that uh, information when it doesn't give us other things it isn't I say I think the the script could have done with like a once a, one more draft or that sort of thing just to address some of this because <clears throat> that that scene is really interesting because and if we talk about Deckard and we'll get onto him what he is but he actually it's clear that he you know he's a former he's a, he's a former Blade Runner like he has left I don't know what he's doing now because he's still clearly in his sort of yeah. you know mid to late thirties so he's you know he obviously needs a job. Um, and he's being brought back in because they just say to him, like that Taft, because he says to him, he says, oh, we, I want the old Blade Runner black, uh, back because the other guy was killed. And you go, okay, so we sort of, it's like a one last job sort of sort of deal. I get that. And you think, okay, so maybe he's used to dealing with older models, but you still would have, like you say, a lot of the information that he's, he sort of seems to be lacking um, in that description. 
Um, and there's other ways you could produce like the dialogue in you know in, in exposition in more subtle ways with like between Pris and JF Sebastian or Batty and and Sebastian or other people are describing like what is going on outside of this. Um, however, having said that, I do agree that I like that this is a small story. I like that this is actually quite a contained story. Like it has big implications. Like the you know spoilers, but obviously when they kill Tyrell at the end. Um, that that would have huge implications because he's the sort of the genius behind it all. Um, but I like the fact that this isn't sort of one of those sort of the stakes aren't like a, a world ending, um, mm-hmm. you know, Marvel movie where it sort of it gets a bit sort of um, you know just great after a while. Where the stake is that sort of like you know world domination or or whatever or you know Earth destroying. This is just a small. I- it's one detective looking after looking for this small gang. That's it. Well, I think you and I are both attracted to these sort of small stakes stories and and not needing to have it be gratuitously uh, high stakes. Um, and I think about so I think that's a that's a good point. And I think about Tyrell. You never, you know, like if this were <laughs> another director's movie, I'm just imagining like a, an alternate Blade Runner in which, like, you know, what we see here of Tyrell is he's more interested in playing chess, you know? Mm. I mean, he's in this kind of like, uh, aesthetic, uh, uh, you know, he's almost an aesthete. Uh, he's, you know, sort of secluded. He doesn't seem to be doing any work. Uh, if he is, it's not of note to the film. Um, I'm imagining another version of this in which he's like depicted like, uh, you know, Iron Man in the Marvel movies. Like, you know, he's a mad genius and, you know, he goes into a room and there are all these, you know, uh, bizarre thing, you know, creatures, organic creatures, you know, uh, Mecca, who knows, (laughs) you know, he's synthesizing a new element, you know, and he comes out and he's like, oh, Sebastian, you know, let's continue that chess game. Um, And then you might think, well, this is a... This is a more important thing that he dies. He's this sort of crazy genius. Um, And I love the fact that he's depicted as sort of the head of this corporation, yet he's almost retired, it seems Mm. like. He's not really, he's not depicted as as a phenomenal genius. I mean, you get the sense that he's smart, but, you know, he's not working on, uh, you know, eight million new secret projects uh, for the Tyrell Corporation. Yeah. Um, I, well, that's I, and I, I love that depiction. I, I do. I have to admit, I, I do like Tyrell because again, like, and the actor isn't a you know he isn't like a um, a big A list actor. Like if they'd have given this, I can imagine them giving this to someone else who sort of sees this as an opportunity to chew the scenery. You know, sort of really go for it and be that character. Um. But he is, he's, he's quite downplayed. He, sort of, he, he comes across incredibly sinister. You know, like I think he knows, the one thing I always get from him is that like he knows the power he wields. And so he's sort of quite just confident. You know, everything is sort of like yeah. at his whim sort of thing. Um, but the thing I find interesting the most, we've said about, there's there's a comment as well that early on when he's when Deckard's been introduced to the replicants and they're trying to get Deckard to do the job again. He, he says about being on Earth, Taffy says on Earth, he says about being on Earth, you're either police or one of the little people. Um, and, and so there's this sense of like the majority, like you say, the majority of the population left on Earth are the, you know, the, the, the rejects, the miscreants, those that couldn't, couldn't get off earth but tyrell has chosen to stay behind um Mm. 
and, and that's the sense I get. Like you know, this this he's created this like fortress. Like the Tyrell building is a fortress, and it's created this sort of his own little empire, this little kingdom within this building. But he probably never leaves it, um, and so he's sort of he's isolated from the world, and it's got, he's just got this the Tyrell bubble around him, and I just think it's. Again, like it's, I find it fascinating, and I've got my own head cannon for all these things. But <clears throat> he is such an interesting character that sort of like you know he's disconnected from the world, but he's never going to leave the world. Like he could be off world, and his whole all his appearances could be like by a video screen if they really wanted. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I think what you know, I love what you're saying. I hadn't really thought about that. Um, you know, why is he still there? Um, and it occurred to me while you were talking that he's kind of depicted as a sort of Howard Hughes character. Mm. Um, you know, he's sort of a little crazy, maybe, and he's sort of secluded. You don't get the sense that, you know, I mean, he doesn't have long fingernails or anything. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you don't get the sense that, you know, anybody visits him except for Sebastian and maybe a few assistants who he doesn't have a close relationship with. Well, that's true. It's, it's funny, the relationship he seems to have with the outer world, because... He is, you know, it's, Ty, it's the Tyrell Corporation, and he is Tyrell. Like he's the head of the tree, sort of thing. <clears throat> and yet, he is he is giving time to a blade runner detective. Like, if you were to go, if you know, if 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 you were to go to a robotics company now or any any large company, you wouldn't get the CEO. Right. Like, you know what I mean? Like, if there was a, yeah. even if like, if you if you were to be go to like Disney. As a detective, like Bob Iger's not popping down to talk you through that what the case is, is it? Like you know, <laughs> you, you're getting a lowly person, and it, so it's an odd relationship that, like, yeah, you're actually going to get to deal with Tyrell um, for these next yeah, six that's a, droids. That's a good point. Um, I that it's a little stagey. It's a little like, well, let's introduce this character because he's kind of important, and mm. we don't need to add uh, six assistants. You know to this uh, small cast. It really is a remarkably small cast Mm. and and sort of intimate story. But I think it works because I think, yeah, because it it does reduce the cast and and, and the sort of the levels between the the replicants and and Tyrell. But it also adds to his sort of arrogance, I think, as well, and his sort of feeling of like, you know, he is granting uh, an audience almost in this case, you know, it's sort of he has the power, and yeah. in this case, because of you know, um, this is I, I get the feeling this is the first time that Nexus Six replicants have come to Earth, so it's probably like tickled his fancy. Like if this was an older version of a replicant that's come back, like he probably wouldn't care. He'd just be leaving it to the you know, he'd leave it to the to the Blade Runner to sort out. But this is something a little new that takes his interest, and I feel like he's got ah. a bit like a vested interest in this one, <clears throat> and he just wants to show off. He's like. Oh well, yeah, it took you how many questions to get them? Well, get, guess what? Because I've got an, I've got the Nexus Seven here, which I think they end up referring to <laughs> Rachel as. And so I, I just feel it's a bit. It, he is it, stagey is the right word. That whole scene where he is first in, where Deckard is introduced to to Tyrell, and then Rachel um, feels orchestrated. You know, to, mm-hmm. it's an opportunity for him to show how powerful and how clever he is. Um, and it, it, yeah, so it's sort of, and also, well, uh, he's an interesting character in that way. No, I think you're right, and I, I think there's also the motivation that he seems interested in seeing how uh, Rachel as a Nexus Seven holds up to 
the Voight-Kampf mm-hmm. um, administered by a professional. Um, and maybe that is the agenda there. Um, I love those scenes. You know, mm-hmm. I love the Tyrell building. Uh, I think, you know, starting with the the artificial owl, all the scenes with Rachel, you know, I love the Voight-Kampf. Um, you know, it's really only used a couple times, but... Uh, and, and early in the movie, but I love it as a device. Um, and I have to say that, you know, for me, the whole Rachel plot and the whole idea of somebody discovering that they're artificial um, is the most interesting plot. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that I am, you know, it's it's interesting to me that uh, Blade Runner 2049 um, is features, you know, as somebody who knows they're a replicant. Um, but, you know, there isn't, in all of Blade Runner, there isn't a character who's sort of like shocked to consciousness, uh, who finds out they're a replicant, except Rachel. Mm. Um, and she's sort of, you know, brought low by, you know, because she's got sort of snooty uh, class uh, pretensions. She's works for Tyrell. Um but her story is way more interesting to me than Deckard's story. Um, and I think that the thing that I actually find most lacking in this film is that she has so little interior space. Um, you know, she's kind of struggling when uh, Deckard calls her drunk, right? You get the sense that she, you know, uh, you know, she's left his apartment. He's sort of proved that uh, she's a replicant and then retreated from it. But the point's been made. She leaves. Uh, he calls her drunk. She kind of spontaneously shows up and, and saves her from Leon. And then her solution to uh, discovering that she is an artificial life form and basically has to go on the run, right, um, is uh, to have sex with a guy who outed her. Well, yeah, that... that... That scene in itself is interesting. I mean, to get to the point, it's like you say she 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 has worked for Tyrell. She's got or you don't I don't know how you don't know how long is it because you don't know what her inception date or incept date is. So you don't know how long she's actually been active. <clears throat> but you get the feeling it's not very long. Um, but then, sort of, like you say, so for this finding out. Um, you know how like future films come along and they sort of like you know you see the future this film that come out sort of many years later and you look back at an earlier film and you go, oh, it, it sort of it sort of influences obviously how you see the previous film. In mm-hmm. this in this instance, um, the one thing that jumped to my mind and it's not it's it, it sort of shadows it in a bad way. It was Toy Story, and especially when you say shock to consciousness when Buzz Lightyear finds out and sort of realizes he's a toy and has his breakdown. I mean, granted they play it for for laughs in Toy Story. But he has a mental breakdown. And I find with Rachel that she sort of, there, you know, again, it's going for mood. It's going for that sort of noir, sort of smoky feel. Um, but at no point does she does she ever sort of like, she's sad, but never like, you know, it's, um, you're right. She, she never, she seems shallow in that respect. Like she's not searching like, you know, well, do I have a soul? Am I real? What's my purpose? It, it never sort of feels like it's really, bothering her other than sort of like surface level mm-hmm. um and so sort of like that yeah and I, look on yeah i mean i think that you're right and i think that 
there's also this way in which, in addition to this being a movie about mood and there's little dialogue, there's very little emotion. Mm. Um, you know, uh, Deckard basically shows no emotion through the whole thing, except irritation, minor <laughs> irritation, uh, and wanting to live in the final fight. Um, you know, uh, Rachel seems to show very little emotion. I mean, she, she discovers that she's not real and outside of a few little subtle things doesn't really, she never breaks down. You never see anyone. It's just like, Oh yeah, uh, I'm a fake person. Uh, okay. That's fine. Um, you know, characters show so little emotion with the exception of Batty Mm. and the exception of, uh, the replicants on the run. And I think, that's always been very interesting to me. This sort of, uh, as a kind of commentary on, um, and I want to return to Rachel, but but this like emotionless thing, um, you can ding it, but it also is, I always felt it was a sort of commentary on our uh, sort of, you know, late 20th century malaise, now 20th, 21st century, in which, you know, so many people are not that interested in their own lives mm-hmm. and they just kind of go to work and, you know, it's like, why are you doing this? Why are you driving an hour to work and an hour back? Well, this is just what's done. Um, aren't you angry at X, Y, and Z? No, we, you know, we're, we're just used to it now. Um, you know, there is this way in which we sometimes act like automatons and, and here they are these artificial people who are more emotional and are more alive even yes. Zora, if we don't know why she's stripping, at least she's stripping. The others are trying, you know, learning backflips, you know, yeah. uh, going out and killing people, you know, ha- engaging in new experiences. No, I agree, because I was saying, and Batty's reaction when he turns up to uh, Sebastian's home and has to explain to Pris that they're the only two, you know, like he, you see that he's feeling it, like he feels that loss. Um and so, yeah, you're right. They they're, they're the ones that do show emotion. I think the it's cause again Harrison Ford again going to emotionality. So sort of like the only time he really does show any emotion in that sense of what I would say would be you know actual feeling, other than sort of like, you know like you say the bit of irritation and, and uh, desire to live, is when he does kill Zora. Like he's you know when he chases her down and kills her. When he's done it, he does sort of there's a little bit of regret, or what I take to be regret. You know, like he stands over the body, and it feels like he's he, you, it makes me wonder. Like, is that why he's a former Blade Runner? Like, is that what made him leave? Like, was it this thing of killing things that to him look human? Like, you know, does he, does he struggle with that? But that's the only scene where you ever really feel about it. Like, he's clearly an alcoholic. He's got he's got a drinking problem. Um, but again, like you say, it's I, I don't need a massive backstory, but like, and it's good that he sort of shows some some response to having killed something that for all intents and purposes has done nothing wrong other than exist. Um, yeah. So I, I find that interesting, well, but yeah. And I think, I think, you know, in the novel Deckard's counterpart, um, you know, is, is hunting more blade run is hunting more replicants mm. and does more. It does take a more explicit toll on him. Um, but I, I do take I like everything you're saying, and I, I take that as true. I'm but I'm also disturbed. Like I like that there's a little bit of emotion there. I like the suggestion that that's why he retired. Um, you know, but there's still. I I mean I think we're supposed to feel bad that he shot a woman 
in the back twice, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, but then again, the the movie seems to undermine that. And and I think, you know, especially in this era of Me Too, he basically rapes Rachel. Yes, that, that really made me feel uncomfortable in this one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, you know, it's a little bit like... Uh, you know, I I uh, I said to uh, my friend who I was watching it with, I said, you know, you know, uh, apparently that's the way to a girl's heart, right? You <laughs> block her leaving, you physically block her from leaving, then throw assault her, throw her against the wall. She's clearly upset, and you then tell her what to say to turn you on and have sex with her, and then you leave together romantically. That's not a very healthy paradigm. Uh, I, I would say, actually say, I'd go further and say, I think their whole relationship is um, crooked. Because I think, yeah, you, mm-hmm. <clears throat> that relationship, like her affection for him is based on trauma. Like if you take it that she's, Absolutely. She, she's suddenly realized that she is not a, you know, she's <clears throat> got her Pinocchio moment. She's not a real person. And that's his reaction to take advantage. Um, you know, I mean, if again, like his his thing of storming across the the room and blocking the door, if he was like, if he was to stop and say, "No, we've got to talk about this and work through it," you can't just run away from right. it. I'd be like, "Yeah, you, you that's supporting her, and you you know you're going to try and help her through it." <clears throat> but then, like you say, to actually tell her, he says to her, he says to her, "Tell me to kiss you," and then she, I mean, she ad libs and goes a bit further and stuff, and then that's that's it. It sort of becomes <clears throat> they clearly go off and sleep together, but. I'm never con- I'm never entirely sure why he loves her or or if he, or even if he does like is, does he just see her as a way out is it a, the relationship never never really makes a great deal of sense I, I can see why she starts to fall for him in that in almost like a post traumatic stress kind of way but I, I I never see what 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 you know I mean obviously she's very attractive but like um I don't see what motivates Deckard to sort of have those emotions towards her. It, it you know, other than pity, um, it, his arc is unclear to me. That's a very good point, and I think that, like so many things in this film, we're sort of left to imagine. Mm. Um, and maybe those answers that we come up for ourselves are more satisfying than what the movie would have given us. Um, I, I love Rachel. I mean, I think Rachel. Uh, I'm sort of in love with with that character. Um, but I had forgotten how one-sided that relationship is. Mm. I mean, partially because I like that ending narration of sort of like, hey, when you're in love, uh, you know, maybe it won't last forever. Maybe that's okay. Um, you know, I like that. But that's not really what their relationship is. And I think you're right that, um, you know, we can sort of guess that Harrison Ford, you know, I mean, he he had been retired. Uh, Deckard had been retired and he hasn't liked this case and he feels guilty about, you know, the way he uh, has basically ruined Rachel's life um, and feels she's attractive and, and he wants to get out too. Um, I think that her story is very interesting to me. I mean, there's a way in which watching this, I feel repulsed by Deckard's treatment of her, especially in the, what I'm calling the sort of rape scene, Um, you know, and uh, of course the shooting of Zora, but 
I think I think if this were a slightly different movie, if there were a little more interior space granted to Rachel, you know, you almost have a narrative in which she sort of has no out. Right. Mm. She knows that if she leaves, somebody else is some other Blade Runner is going to come hunt her down. Uh, Deckard has told her exactly as much. Um, And she needs him for protection. And you know she has literally no she doesn't seem to have anyone in her life outside of him and tyrell it seems as if if tyrell has thrown her to the side or maybe she's just uh realized she's a replicant and thus it's illegal for her to be on earth and so she's kind of secluded herself um and maybe she came down to uh see deckard when deckard was drinking because she realized i don't have anyone else um if I have any out, I'm going to get killed. And if I have any out, it's this guy. And there is a way in which that narrative, while incredibly sad, could actually be read as a very uh, feminist narrative, mm. as a narrative of a woman who, because of her lot in life, whether it's, you know, she was poor or she's a replicant, uh, doesn't have options and basically chooses this abusive man because. Uh, that's the best she can get. Uh, that society is so stacked against her that that's a necessary choice. No, I, I think I think you're right. I mean, this is the thing. It, it feels um, like she, she is trapped. And again, like I say, minor changes would make it so that she, you know, like I say, she could have a stronger, uh, more agency you know, a, a bit more agency about her decision-making. Um, but, yeah, it, it does feel a little bit like she is just clinging to the one person that can probably help her survive. Um, so, it, I suppose that does raise the question, is she is she aware enough that she's actually... Is she actually manipulating Deckard then to... for him then to get her out, or is it authentic, you know, the, the emotions and the feelings? It's... Yeah. Well, I mean, we kind of have to speculate about feeling because neither <laughs> one of them show too much. Yeah. I mean, and this sort of gets into that. This, You know, we, we, we sort of bring us around. We talk about emotion. This sort of brings us around to that final question of Deckard being uh, human or replicant. Um, and, you know, he, he is more like Rachel in that sense of... Um, Lack of emotion or whatever, and we've said about we've said about the replicants showing more emotion, uh, at least the gang that we're show, we're seeing, the, the group that we're seeing. So, you know, th- th- there's an argument for both, or whatever. But really, then they said, "What's that? What? What are your thoughts on that?" Then of of Deckard himself, like, is you know that final thing of him getting out and going off? Is it him just going off to live a life, or is it a, a replica? Two replicants on the run. Yeah, I, I, I think it's ambiguous. However, um, I tend to come down on the side that uh, he's a replicant, mostly because it's more interesting. Mm. Um, I mean, I think that's a more interesting plot. Um, what do you think about that? Um, I agree with what you're saying. That the, the, the concept or the, you know, the narrative idea of him being a replicant is more interesting. However... I can't get past, and maybe this is just the way my brain works, but I cannot get past 
the film's logistics that tell me otherwise. Uh huh. So, um, what what's the you know what evidence would you say stacks up to show that he is a replicant? Well, I don't think there's a lot of evidence. Um, I I think that you know what everyone points to as what makes the uh, the revised two cuts, uh, the director's cut and then the final cut superior is this final scene in which gaff this this policeman played by edward james almost has uh previously been shown to i think just in one scene you know to be making these little origami animals and then there's a sort of dream sequence in which it suggests that deckard is uh dreaming about a unicorn um and you've been told when deckard kind of uh outs Rachel to herself, he describes her childhood memories um, and says, you know, they're Tyrell's niece. You were implanted with memories from her. Um, and so in the in the final scene, you sort of see that a um, origami unicorn has been left by Gaff in, I think, Deckard's apartment. And this is supposed to mean that uh, Gaff knows Deckard's dreams. Thus, those dreams were implanted and Deckard is a replicant. I think that is shitty evidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, first of all, I hate the dream sequence. Mm-hmm. Uh, secondly, you know, it's one animal. that That's not the same thing as having uh, a bunch of childhood memories. Um, I think the best evidence, I mean, that's what everyone points to. I think even without that, the implication is there that it's a possibility. And again, it comes back to Rachel. It's the scene where she um, has found out that she's a replicant. She has, you know, rescued uh, Deckard from uh, Leon and they go back to his place. And it's prior to, you know, the the rape Mm -hmm. business. Um, And Rachel asks Deckard if he ever took the void conf himself. Um, and, and they're having this conversation. She looks over and he's asleep. Okay. Um, yeah. And now again, the sleep, maybe that suggests the, the dream, but we don't cut to the dream there. Then she is like, Oh, Deckard is asleep. She looks at old photos of his, which obviously recall the photo of her as a child that he debunked. Um, uh, and then suddenly Deckard is awake, <laughs> you know, and he says, I, I, I dreamed about you. And, um, it seems to me that Deckard, it seems pretty obvious to me that Deckard is faking sleep unless he fell asleep for like five minutes. It seems the, the, the question, her question is explicitly, do you know if you're not a replicant? And then we, the camera looks at, you know, the movie is very interested in these photos, which are, you know, we know can be faked. Um, so the implication is that she and thus us are sort of looking at them, seeing if they're convincing or not. And there are more than just one, but, uh, that need not be proof. Uh, and then suddenly Deckard is awake and it seems to me, especially on this viewing, I thought, oh shit, Deckard is, is, was pretending Mm. to be asleep. So he doesn't have to answer that question. Uh, I was going to go to the same scene and it's the, it is this, it is that that's the one scene that makes me wonder. Um, and for two, there were two reasons. Again, sort of what you say, he, he, yeah, he is clearly pretending to be asleep. So he did like, I'm bored of talking to you. <laughs> you know, I'll be honest with you. I've done that, but 
<laughs> it's one of those like I say he because he does when he comes around she plays the piano doesn't she and he says oh I dreamt I dreamt you were playing the mm-hmm. music um those photos struck me this time as really interesting now you you say about Rachel's photos uh or the photo that Rachel has which you know uh is is a fake or as a you know she's just given it as it looks enough like her that she can believe it's her as a child or whatever but the thing that sort of struck me more this time um about those photos is they're not current photos so there are photos there are some that look like they've been taken with you know sort of like a kodak or whatever but there's a bunch of older photos which are clearly sort of I don't know, like, you know, early 20th century, possibly even Victorian. They're very sort of the grayscale kind of thing, portrait, you know, portraiture of sort of head and shoulder bust, that sort of thing. And what that sort of struck me is this time, it's like Leon. So in it, Leon collects photographs. And when you look at the photographs that Leon's collecting, you know, when he goes into his apartment and there's the one he has taken, which, you know, I don't care how well, how HD your camera is, you cannot enhance it that much. Yeah. But the, the other, so there's that one which has obviously got Roy Batty and Zora in it. Um, but when he looks at the other photographs, they're just a random selection of photographs, and they date from different eras. So there's this notion of sort of like creating not just a past, but almost like an ancestry. Um, and it made me wonder, like, why does he have these photos of sort of like past? past people like what is it what is it to him that these are setting on this piano and that just sort of struck me this time as not so much similar to to, um rachel but similar to leon and leon's behaviors that's a good point um you know i hadn't i hadn't thought about that that connection to leon um but you said logistically i mean there certainly are some some problems um if he is a replicant, why would they let him retire? For one, yeah, that's uh, that's the biggest one for me. <laughs> okay. sort of like, he was a former Blade Runner. All right, I'm I'm happy that again you could have a robot or a droid or a replicant that is there to you know if you could implant the memories, you might have a, you can have it actually acting against its own kind. Not a problem with that. But this thing of like they've let him retire and he's clearly living not to say comfortably, but he still he has a life. Um, so you know, and they know he's about. And it's not like they've got him, they obviously bring him back in, but it's not like they've got him um, on sort of speed dial of like, you know, or whatever, or where they're monitoring him. It just happens to be that they find him at the, you know, in the market sort of area in the streets. Um, it, yeah, that bit just didn't ring true to me. So, well, you know, if, surely if that was the case, if that was your process and you, the Blade, Blade Runners or a portion of the Blade Runners were actually replicants, when they decided to retire or quit, for whatever purpose, surely you'd have a process for that that says, right, you either can them, you know, so you actually do retire them yourself, or there'd be some memory wipe kind of technology that says, okay, well, let's just wipe that motion out and you can carry on for another three years or whatever. It, it just logistically, like the whole, the four year lifespan in itself seems like corporately, from a sort of a, a competitive point of view or a commercial point of view, seems like a really bad idea. Like if you're going to sell something that expensive and that complex and then say it only lasts four years, would you buy a car that only lasts four years? It's ridiculous. But it, it, I don't know, it logistically, it never felt, it never sort of felt like it could work. And the other thing, again, is um, later on, um, I don't know which part of it, there's, the, oh, that was it, you said about Batty and his endurance and their strength. And it just mm-hmm. seems like he hasn't got he hasn't got anything that would justify why you would use a replicant for that job. 
So for like for Zora, uh, she's a death squad. So she's got, you know, she's a death squad member or whatever. So she's got increased strength, speed, and, and endurance. Same for Batty. Same for um, uh, Leon. You know, you see, and and Pris, you see, they've got their ability to go into the hot water or the cold. He he doesn't demonstrate anything. And then when he gets beaten up, like he get he takes a Harrison Ford beating, which is you know he sort of flails around and takes a kick in. There's nothing to say to me that says, even if they're saying he was a former a, a former model, you know, like a, an earlier version of a replicant. Surely one of the best selling points of a replicant, even from version one, is they are tougher and can be used in hostile environments. At no point does he show in any anything that shows he is capable of being uh, working in a hostile environment. He can't even jump from building to building. Yeah. It's, it's, so yeah, it just logistically, he never, it never seems to stack up that he would be a replicant. And I don't care what Ridley Scott says. I swear to God, he has only come to that conclusion as he was putting future versions of that film together. Yeah. I, I, I wouldn't go that far. I mean, I kind of, I, that ambiguity is certainly teased, at least in Rachel's questioning, right? Mm. Um, I mean, I think that my take on it is that basically it was written and uh, and shot, I mean, at least written, such that he's not a replicant. Mm. But that the question is sort of teased, even within the, the, the script, right? Um, and that might seem to be just a philosophical musing at the time, but the possibility is certainly raised. Um, and that's true for uh, the novel as well. Um, mm. You know, the, the novel does have this and, and it seems to ultimately retreat from it and sort of, you know, suggest that uh, he's not. But, um, but there is this sort of uh, business where the rug is pulled out from under you and, um, you know, you sort of wonder about this in, in the novel. Um, so... I mean, I think that, you know, ultimately, maybe that stuff just got into the script because it mirrored the novel. But I agree with you that the script is does not think, you know, it, it's not really yeah. shot like Deckard is, is a replicant. And even if I, I think it's more realistic to say Ridley Scott was interested in that ambiguity and that possibility. Um, but he certainly didn't argue with Harrison Ford about it on set. And Harrison mm. Ford didn't play it as if he was a replicant. I mean, that's clear. Yeah. Well, I think just to, just to throw something else out about the unicorn as well, just as a fun thing. Like, you know, the the daydream of um, the unicorn. I, I will struggle. I struggle to explain that. I granted. But when we get to the origami, uh, Gaff actually presents um, three origami things throughout the film. The first one I think is a chicken. Um, which I think he does as a bit of a, a bit of a dig at Deckard, sort of like you know, it's a little bird. I think it's supposed to be a chicken, so it's almost like you coward, and I think that's part of it. And then he does like a little person, which I've always oh, taken right. as to sort of uh, as a little person, sort of go, I know you're with Rachel, you know your relationship with Rachel, because that comes a bit later. And that's how I've always taken it. So when the unicorn came for me, it's almost like you know, Gaff has made that decision to let them go for whatever purpose, maybe you know. But I always felt that the unicorn represented like, and here's your fantasy. Like you are going off to live a fantasy world because she is, whether or not he is, she definitely right. is. This isn't going to be your happy ending. It's a fantasy, as much as a unicorn is. Um, and so that's I, good I, shit, you know, man. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. 
so that's how I sort of like Gaff is for me, Gaff is like because Gaff's a prick, let's be fair. Like Gaff is a horrible person in this. Like not not, you know, in sort of any other way than I mean, you know, he doesn't try to rape a woman like like Deckard does. Doesn't force himself anyway. But when he turns up on when he turns up, like he is always like just mean and, and sort of a little bit spiteful. And it's he's always like do we yeah, he is. He's an absolute prick. But it's interesting that, like you say, he's always having these little digs at Deckard. So people have taken it as like, well, he's trying to give him that wake-up moment of like, I know what your memories are. Um, much like he did with Rachel, so much like Deckard did with Rachel. But again, I could I can go the other way. Like he's just saying, you're living in a fantasy world. This is, I'm going to let you go and have it, but someone's going to be coming for you. You're living in a fantasy world. Um, I, I, I like that. Mm. I think that's that's pretty brilliant, and I, and I think that um, I mean, see, I like the ambiguity. I think it's mm. more interesting if Deckard is a replicant, but I think that conversation with Rachel does a better, more is a more meaningful attempt at that than that ending with the origami. And and even mm. if he were a replicant, I would still prefer your interpretation of the unicorn. Yeah, it's interesting. I just think you know because it's it's there are different and I I agree there is still ambiguity because I, I, as I said before I flip flopped on this idea between the two viewings I had uh, over the past week. So, um, but it wasn't really until I really sort of thought about it and thought, oh, the pragmatic side of me, the logistical side, sort of went, well, the, this bit, and this bit doesn't stack up. But then, you know, I I needed a way of explaining that unicorn and sort of that's how it bubbled to the surface yeah. in my head. I think that's pretty genius. I, I did want to say that the argument about Deckard not being physically strong enough, I mean, again, we're just kind of left to explain stuff in this movie that, that isn't really explained or doesn't really make sense. It, You know, you're right that he takes a, a Harrison Ford beating. Having said that, I've never been convinced of the climbing at the end. I am so irritated by movies in which somebody is hanging on to, you know, mm something and you know it's like humans don't do this there's no body lift lifter in the world who can hang yeah. on by their their hands to you know an eye beam for that long um i mean even the climbing outside of the building i find so preposterous but you know if it, he is a replicant that might he might be able to do that right i mean that might fix this annoying thing of this movie it's true. I mean, again, there are ways. And that's again that goes to ambiguity. Like, yeah, you could read it as actually he had, he he is an earlier model, and he's slightly more in you know got a slightly more increased endurance than say a, you know a human, but he's not to Roy Batty, you know Zora kind of levels because um, there are several you know models and versions in, improved. Um, so again, you Can could I- you could you could still argue both ways. Can I ask you about uh, 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 a few, just a few questions that I have mm-hmm. about things that I find interesting or, or bad? Um, one, one is, I mean, because you re- you remembered, I had forgotten the the um, uh, the second origami with the, the mm-hmm. stick figure with it with the penis. Um, uh, okay, so why does you remember at the end? I mean, I, I do like the these memories will die with me. I mean, that's quintessential. That's what that's about, right? I mean, the yeah. finality of it. Um, why does Batty, when he's on the roof, suddenly has a dove in his hand? Yeah. <laughs> and then it disappears, and then he dies. And you're like, why do you have a dove in your hand? Then he, he dies, 
and it flies away and you think like this is the most ridiculous symbolism in the world but it seems to be physically there in the scene it is like i because yeah. he well he has it on the first roof doesn't he because at one point like he's stroking it and that's when you see deckard yeah. jump the roof and then again he then um then uh batty jumps and he doesn't have it and then he does have it I think cause you see you see what he's wearing. He's wearing like cycling shorts and some sort of like you know funky train some funky trains. I'm not convinced that he hasn't got it stuck on the back of his shorts. <laughs> he's like, oh, this look this will look great. I'm about to die. This is going to look amazing. I've, you know he's clearly a John Woo fan, so he puts it down <laughs> the back of his shorts, jumps, and then just whips it out again when he needs it, just for that final moment. And I think that's why I think that's why he saves. That's why he saves Deckard. He's like, oh, this is going to look amazing. And he just picks him up. <laughs> so someone, just for someone to show, just for that final thing to show off. You know, what's, what's funny is I'm laughing hilariously, <laughs> but that is the best explanation, right? I, mean, I think it's the serious. only explanation. Yes. The, <laughs> unless, unless he jumps and finds another one, but like it seems really sort of distracting to be like, and really fortuitous that another white dove turns up. So. I'm gonna have yeah. the best death scene. You're you're right. I mean, it's the only explanation, but it's so bizarre. I mean, <laughs> I, and I, I mean, why would you? I, I don't know. You know, it just seems so obvious that that's you know the symbolism is so obvious, but also like, you know, is it physically there? And then to to just have this little scene where he pets it earlier, mm. you know, what is the point of that except to say, yeah, yeah, this is physically there. Uh, he's keeping yeah, a dove on him. To yeah. make his death cooler, and well, I, I honestly think as well. So watching it the, these couple of times, the thing I noticed is that I, I feel that like in that last scene, Bet- Batty's mental state deteriorates as well. Mm-hmm. Like he's going into sort of like he knows he's dying, and he goes, he starts like making jokes, like you know, putting his head through the wall when there's a door frame literally like a foot and a half away <laughs> from that sink. It's it's True. He, he's like he's going into sort of like you know, like crazy mode. Like he is just cat and mouse, isn't he? It's sort of playing with Deckard. Um, and so, yeah, I wouldn't put it past him if he has gone a bit crazy. And that's the only reason he's, he's keeping that dove around. Okay. Yeah. I mean that I, I like this explanation. It's, it's, you know, <laughs> I'm um, not sure really Scott's going to endorse it though. <laughs> no, no. Um, well, you mentioned the, the bad, uh, you know, reconstruction of that photo it occurs to me that that is like the most most archetypically archetypically bad image enhancement sequence in all of cinema. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, yeah. like the computer doesn't even do what he's doing. I mean, he says like enhance fifty one to fifty four, and it's a different section of the image when he says yeah. it again. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. just so bad. It turns a corner. I swear to God, because you know. An image, a photo is a 2D image, but this thing turns, it literally rotates around mm-hmm. something in the way. It's, um, I can't even believe at that point when, you know, I know this was made in the early 80s, but at no point did anyone say, this is silly. <laughs> this is really yeah, so, silly. But, and then it's so crisp at the end, right? You know? yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's so bizarre. Um, I mean, the, you know, there's another thing, one of the things that I like most about the novel. Um, and, you know, and Sebastian, I think, is the novel is sort of split between the Deckard character and another character who's the sort of down and out guy who Sebastian is based on, um, mm. but who has a lot more time. And, um, you know, the, the film is much more focused on Deckard. Um, but one of the things that I love about 
that I always come back to about do Android stream electric sheep is the concept of mercerism, that there is this religion that is in this post-apocalyptic sort of radiated world that is based on connection to animals. Mm-hmm. So full disclosure, I have always had dogs. Um, you know, I'm also a, a depressive and, and there are so many times where I'm able to pull myself out of myself with an animal. Um, just petting that animal. Well, maybe, you know, I want to burn the whole world down, but I see that animal and I think, oh my God, I just, I want to make sure you're fed, you know? <laughs> um, and And how could I ever not, want to be responsible for this thing. Um, and I think, you know, that religion is one of the uh, things that really sticks with me about the novel. And I like the traces of it in the movie. Um, I think it fits with the theme of sort of artificial life and what makes us human. And the idea that animals are a part of that, this connection to nature is a part of that. Um you know, it, the void conf has is filled with questions about animals, which is really, mm. you know, theocratic, right? I mean, it's really within the novel that is testing your adherence to the basic concepts of mercerism that, you know, kindness to animals defi- and connection to animals defines us as human beings. Yeah, and that's interesting, actually, because the two questions you sort of see was that they, they're about animals... Uh, and the, the first one, the one they give to Leon, is about uh, a turtle or tortoise mm-hmm. uh, trapped upside down in the sun, isn't it? So is it? Are you going to save it? And you know, he plays dumb, or whether he or he is dumb and doesn't know what a turtle tortoise is. Um, but the one that sticks up to me is uh, the one he gives to Rachel. He says, "There's a wasp on your arm," and mm-hmm. with that, with that, like, a, a missing a beach, like, I'll kill it. And his his reaction to that is actually quite interesting because he sort of he almost not so much takes him back, but he sort of pauses, and it made me wonder like is that one of the questions that she failed? Right. Yeah, I I, I suspect as much. Um, mm. But I mean, he also asked her about a calfskin wallet. Um, yes. He says, you know, about a butterfly collection where you know this person shows you the killing jar. Um, you know, uh, talks about uh, being served a boiled dog. Mm-hmm. You know, and the question is. You know, so so most of those questions you give to Rachel um, involve animals in some form. Um, yeah, and I, and I like that. And I also like, you know, one of the memories that defines uh, the fact that Rachel is artificial is the memory of a spider egg hatching and the mm. babies devouring the mother, um, which is so interesting because it's like nature is you know, represented in these animals, which, you know, there basically are no animals left, right? They're all artificial with, you know, like the snake, the owl. Mm. Um, And animals are, you know, usually used as a connection to, uh, you know, sort of real humanity to, you know, a sort of inner self. But here a replicant's been given memories of nature red in tooth and claw, right? Nature Mm. is horrible. I don't know. I just find that interesting. No, it's a really good point, actually, because I say yeah, it's, it's about the... Chi- well, the, the other thing I suppose say is it's about the children um, devouring the mother, isn't it? Sort of the, the, the spider lays, lays the eggs, and when, the, when the, the babies hatch, they attack and, and kill the mother. So it's, again, that sort of thing of, is it a creation uh, turning on its creator? 
mm. as well. Uh, the, the other thing about the animals that's interesting is like throughout it, because animals are throughout it as well. I mean, granted, they're, they're mostly supposed to be artificial, um, but they are everywhere, aren't they? So even in the marketplace, there's obviously the snakes and there's the uh, mm. uh, you see fish and the uh, emus and all kinds of weird things, sort of animals all over. Um, but the value of those is interesting because again, when when you when Deckard first goes to the Tyrell Corporation, you see the owl. And he's, he says, oh, you know, is it artificial? And he says, yes. And he says, is it expensive? And she says, yes. But then later on, when you meet Zora, he says, oh, is that a real snake? And she says, well, no, of course it's artificial. I couldn't afford a real snake. And you think, well, how expensive then? How What's the value of the artificial? Um, mm-hmm. But it does, it does show, again, in that theme, that artificial life has got less of value than real life, which obviously applies to replicants as well. Um, but uh, yeah, well, it, and I, I I think it's a holdover from the novel because mm. like one of the things that I love most about the novel, um, you know, the sort of Sebastian character, um, you know, is living with someone and they have these devices where you dial a mood, right? Mm. Uh, you know, sort of a parallel for uh, maybe pharmacology today, um, and uh, so you know, you get the irony of like having a fight where one of them, you know, can dial like resistance, you know, yeah. uh, to make sure they don't give yeah. in. Right. Um, and, you know, they can dial forgiveness later. Um, but there's this idea that, you know, because of mercerism, every family should have an animal. Mm. And so if you're really rich, you have one of the last few surviving animals. But most people have like an artificial sheep or an artificial, you know, goat on the roof or something, you know, some little thing that they can kind of connect to that substitutes for this religious demand actually that you have some kind of animal um it's a it's a religious necessity um and so the artificial animals are expensive but a real one is much more so so Mm -hmm. i think zora's lines are kind of uh are kind of uh recalling that but you're right that within the the context, it doesn't totally make sense uh, because they haven't really explored all of this stuff, which I think is another like, you know, just a little bit about the off colonies that or the off world stuff would add a lot to this movie. Yeah, I, I think I agree. Actually, and it, it would just be little scenes. But um, I mean, I think the whole thing with Zora is, is I think that, you know, her statement is less about the economics of it. And I think it's more there to drill home, isn't it, about the value given to artificial life. But um, I do like that, the idea of that, that, you know, there's the, the loss of, you know, there's a clearly like a loss of the natural world beyond Los Angeles. And so it sort of made it more valuable and, and more of a, um, a, a commodity, but more of a something to, to, to worship and to, you know, to feel good. It, it, it makes me wonder, like, so, you know, what have animals then been taken off world as well as this sort of, you know, um, mm. yeah, I, I don't know. There's, there's That's another a good question. There's more story to be t- to be told. Um, you know, there's a wider world in that, I suppose, really. Um, that, yeah, you know, no, I think so too. I mean, someday we'll have to talk about 2049. Um, mm. I I do wonder though why Zora doesn't throw him out. I, I think one of the weakest portions of the film is Harrison Ford doing this pathetic like. Uh, you know, uh, sexual harassment investigator, you know, yeah. that's very sort of Rick Moranis and Ghostbusters or something, yeah. you know, sort of like, ah, I'm here to, I hope you haven't been taken advantage of. Yeah. Well, um, she, she never asks why her 
at no point did she say, sorry, you've just watched 10 of the ladies, mm-hmm. like 10 of the women go past. Why did you talk to them? Why, why me? Like she, she obviously gets suspicious quite quickly, but straight away. Yeah. As a detective, it's, it, it doesn't she, seem like the best, the, this is not the best act. <laughs> no. And, and I think it, you know, it does play into the whole sexism thing and, and, you know, it does sort of suggest, you know, the the sort of early, you know, 80s uh, mm. setting uh, in which this was made. Um, but I never understand why she, you know, even if she makes him for a cop and figures that he knows she's a replicant, why would you not at least say, you know, get out of here? You know, you're the pervert. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it does feel a little bit. Uh, she, not yeah, awkward. The scene just feels a bit awkward. It feel, it's designed obviously it's designed to get to the chase, but it could have been again uh, uh, one more pass over the script. I think really could have solved like you know everything. And that's not to say that this again the film's not really good. I didn't I really enjoy it, but I suppose that's the thing when you get into it, there starts to be bits and pieces that sort of uh, <laughs> don't don't hold up to scrutiny. Yeah, it's still a classic. I mean, I, I think that would be my final takeaway is, uh, you know, that, you you know, it's it's a classic. I mean, there are shots in here. There are ideas in here that you cannot imagine science fiction without. And, no. you know, it is astounding the extent to which Blade Runner was uh, a failure, obviously commercially, um, but was really uh, irrelevant. Uh, for years yeah and it seems with every passing year it has become more and more influential true and the other thing so obviously we are recording this uh, it's, it's coming out later but we are recording this in november 2019 <laughs> which is exactly when the film takes place so um yeah i you know i don't have my flying car or replicant yet so again yet again another film letting me down with what the future was supposed to be um yeah i'm very very angry about that yeah um <laughs> I, you know, where are all these beautiful skyscrapers? Where are my replicants? That's where are it. my hover cars? Where are the off-world colonies? That's it, yeah. They were really ambitious. Totally. About, they were so ambitious about what was <laughs> going to be achieved in sort of like 30 plus years. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, and also, just underline, Scott, we are old. Yes. We are so old. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the future is in the past now. And we're just old. Yeah, I sort of started to feel it when it got to, when it got to 2015, and people were celebrating Back to the Future Two Day, and I was like, "Oh my god, mm. like that's it! I'm uh, uh-huh. I'm now living in the future." Not to complain, I love what we've got for the most part, but uh, yeah, when, when we get to hoverboards and flying cars, um, you know, I'll be a lot happier. <laughs> well, and just remember, it's better than death, right? Very true. Uh, Very true. You know. I'm still glad to be alive and uh, glad that as far as I know, I'm not a replicant yeah. uh, and I haven't reached my expiration date. No, that's true. Um, and one day we'll probably get around to talking about, we may not be replicants, but you know, whether or not we're in the matrix, that's a whole different question. Ah. <laughs> well, I mean, there's another one that borrows a lot from this. Yeah. I think there's going to be a few, I mean, even in this list, even in this season, we are also going to be talking about Akira um, mm. soon. And that, that, owes an awful lot. The aesthetic of that film owes an awful lot to Blade Runner. And uh, we will definitely be discussing that. But next up is Cronenberg's uh, The Fly. Yes. Yeah. So we're going to be talking about yeah the, uh, the 1980s Jeff Goldblum remake, uh, David Cronenberg's The Fly, um, which 
uh, I'm a big, big fan of, but I haven't actually watched in a couple of years. So I'm really interested to go back to that and uh, get some uh, some Brundlefly and uh, talk some body horror <laughs> as well. So, uh, yeah. Are you excited for The Fly? Yeah, I, I'm ex- I haven't seen it in, in probably 10 years. Um, uh, I saw it as a kid, uh, you know, and I do think it was very influential for the body horror stuff. But I, I, I have no idea how well it's going to hold up. Yeah, that's yeah. It's, it's one again. It's probably been about five six years since I've seen it. So yeah, to see if it still holds up uh, to scrutiny is going to be quite interesting. Um, but that's it, folks. So we've talked our Blade Runner, uh, and I think if you know we've we've raised some really interesting and in somewhat controversial points today. Um, so if you want to reach out and talk to us about this, let us know um, if you think we're right or wrong uh, about Roy Batty shoving a dove down the back of his pants. Uh, reach out to us <laughs> at uh, Pod Time Space on Twitter, uh, and uh, you know, let us know what you think. Um, I think there's some interesting conversations to be had around this film. But Julian, oh, thank you very much again. It's it's a, it's a great discussion. Thank you, Scott. Uh, it's so much fun. I'm proud of what we've done tonight. Yes. No, I think I think it'll be. Uh, I think that the people will be interested. There's some interesting points that people can take away from this one because I want to sort of like you know. I do want to just finalise by point saying I really enjoy this film, and I think you, you know, you've said as well, you you do enjoy this film as well. So I know we've sort of torn it down a little bit in places, but that sort of it's not to sort of uh, discredit its classic status. It's just uh, absolutely sometimes, and, and, and you can criticise. Look, I mean, two thousand one has problems. I yeah. mean, you know, Citizen Kane has problems. You know. Um, all of these movies have problems. I mean, that doesn't mean that it's not influential or that, uh, I mean, I, 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 you know, there are few characters in all of movies and comics that I would be ever tempted to have just like a print of on the wall, just of them. <laughs> yeah. Rachel's one of them. Yes. Uh, it, she's iconic for me. Uh, I, I find her story fascinating. I want to write the side cool about Rachel, you know, um, I, you know, I mean, images of that city, uh, I can't get it out of my mind. Uh, they, you know, the, the projection of the, the sort of geisha on, on the skyscraper. Mm. I mean, that is just absolutely iconic. Um, though these things, uh, live and they live and they, uh, are in our heads and haunt our dreams. You know, they're the things I dream about instead of unicorns. Yeah. (laughs) No, I agree. Uh, it, it does. It does. It does stand up as as you know a milestone of sci-fi cinema, and rightfully so. Um, but you're right; these films, and that's you know, they're there to be discussed. And um, I think we've had a good one this week. So, folks, thank you very much for listening. And uh, I say, in the next episode, we'll be discussing Cronenberg's The Fly. We'll see you soon. Bye.